This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, it's already taking off on Twitter. People are chiming in from coast to coast on our hot question of the day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says there is still a lot of discussion to be had about who will cover security costs while Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle are living in Canada. When asked by Global's Donna Friesen if Canada would pay for the Sussex, 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 can you say that five times? Security costs while in Canada, the Prime Minister said this. We're not entirely sure what the final decisions will be, where the dispositions are, and those are those are decisions for them. Uh, I think uh, most Canadians are very supportive of of having uh, having you know, royals be here, but uh, how that looks and what kind of costs is involved, there's still lots of discussions to have. Yeah. So a non-answer. What's your thought on this? It's the hot question of the day: Should Canadian taxpayers foot the bill for Prince Harry and Meghan's security? Your options are yes. They need protection or no, it's too much money. You can vote at CKNW on Twitter or on my Twitter handle at Jody Vance. It's Jody with a Y. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah this week. And uh, we're continuing on the topic of the Royals moving to Canada, at least part-time. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that there's still a lot of discussion to be had about who might be on the hook for the security costs uh, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan uh, would incur while living on Canadian soil. When asked by Global's Donna Friesen if Canada would pay for their security costs, uh, the Prime Minister uh, didn't really answer it. Have a listen. We're not entirely sure what the final decisions will be, where the dispositions are, and those are those are decisions for them. Uh, I think uh, most Canadians are very supportive of of having uh, having you know, royals be here, but uh, how that looks and what kind of costs is involved, there's still lots of discussions to have. Yeah. Same topic, different. Politician Premier John Horgan spoke to the media about his government uh, responding to the issue of security costs. Have a listen. I haven't given a lot of thought to that. Uh, I'm sure that there are people working on that right now, and I may have more to say on that should the uh, the Royals choose to put down roots in British Columbia. I'm sure I could find something for Harry to do, and the film industry is booming in British Columbia, so I'm sure Megan could get on with uh, one of the great, maybe Riverdale, who knows. Putting them to work, that's the answer from Premier John Horgan. Certainly, uh, there would be some security costs incurred. I just got an email uh, from Jim who said, why are we talking about security for Harry and Meghan being paid by the Canadian taxpayer? They want to strike out on their own and become financially independent, so does that not also mean paying for their own security? Well, Jim, I I responded to you that that is a good question and one that I'm asking our next guest, uh, Global BC Chief Political Reporter Keith Baldry, is on the line. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jody. my email inbox absolutely filled Jody at cknw.com yesterday when we started talking about the Royals possibly spending a good chunk of time here in British Columbia, specifically on Vancouver Island. And then it was like, who's paying for that? They need security, though, right? They need security because they're not just your average people going into the workforce. Uh, they're public figures. And I, I still think, despite all the crabbiness people may have about who pays for security, my experience in covering the royals in terms of royal visits, whether it was uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles back in the 80s or the, or the, the Queen and Prince Philip a couple times, uh, most recently uh, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, we're talking about mob scenes in terms right. of public reaction. There's just almost delirium 
amongst the public uh, when they come out and, and view these people. So, uh, and I think Harry and Meghan are, are no different than the, than the others. They're members of the royal family. They're treated differently. They're seen differently, and they have much different security concerns than than almost any other level of celebrity. So it's uh, it's uh, something that's going to have to be borne, I think, undoubtedly by the Canadian taxpayers at it for some time. Is my understanding. And again, we've got no confirmation one way or another over how much time they're going to spend in Canada. But if they're literally spending half the year here, uh, it's going to be an expensive form of security, but it's going to be paid for, I think, um, inevitably by the Canadian taxpayers. But it's, we're not talking about money that's going to be drained from the health budget. Or right, something. right. This right. is just security costs. And yeah. You don't talk about security. I mean, uh, we don't. We can't find out how much we spend on security for John Horgan, for example, or Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau's security detail is quite significant, and it's expensive, but that's just the price you pay for, for guarding these people. No question about that. And the palace has been very tight-lipped about how much security costs for the, the royal family in general. That's one of the few things that is kept quite mum. I've been uh, going through, obviously, our hot question of the day is about this. Should Canadian taxpayers foot the bill for, for Harry and Meghan's security? And, and it is going off. I'm getting a lot of emails in, but I'm also finding um, an interesting other side to those who are sort of put out by the idea of covering these security costs. Sandy Garasino on Twitter said, since when does Canada telecom Combat veteran, military helicopter pilot, and founder of the Invictus Games, supporting wounded veterans, that he and his family are not welcome here. Well, yeah, I mean, there was an interesting editorial in the Globe and Mail today saying that they have no right to settle down in Canada. But I think, uh, I think, you know, there's always going to be an anti-monarchist uh, faction in Canada that's been entrenched for some time, but it's by no means the majority. And right. again, I go back to the public reaction to royal visits is generally positive, positive and overwhelming. So. Uh, uh, yeah, they're going to they're going to reside. I think probably most likely right here where I am in Victoria, just north of here in North Sandwich, where they stayed over Christmas. Uh, they seem to enjoy their their time there. And I, again, the, the people in the capital are sort of taking and you know I've talked about this in the past, taking pride and sort of ignoring them, um, yes. and not treating them as if there's some magical pixie dust laden celebrities in their midst. So it's uh, security is just part of. The, the reality, reality of, yeah. of uh, someone in this position. And we don't question this, the security costs that are borne by uh, political leaders in this country. And as I say, Justin Trudeau has a significant security detail. And, you know, John Horgan, I, we know his security detail here at the legislature. He always has two, at least two RCMP officers with him at all times. And uh, we pay their salaries. So maybe I'm a sentimental fool. Um, I probably am. I'm not a huge royal watcher. I'm not that person who like wakes up in the middle of the night to to to, to watch. Well, I got to say, I did watch the wedding, so I take that back. I don't, I don't live and die by the reports in the Daily Mail or what have you. Um, but I was thinking immediately about the, the maybe the upside and the positive piece that could be brought by Harry and Meghan. Um, you know, setting up even temporary house here, the, the impacts they might have on charitable organizations, how they could bring awareness, as, as Diana was so great at. You know, Harry seems to really want to embrace that side and, and sort of, I don't know, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at the, the level of paparazzi attention that they got in the UK that I'm kind of flattered that they want to come here and hang with those of us, as you said, who might just let them buy a coffee at the local coffee shop without bugging them. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they they were here over Christmas. You know, I'm in the media, all my colleagues, none of us went out there and trailed them and tried to you know, right. goon them and, and get su- surprise snapshots and that type of thing, which would occur if we're in London. 
uh, that's not how we roll, basically, here in Canada. So I think uh, they could have the potential to create some significant charitable benefit. I mean, um, Harry is uh, involved in the Invictus Games, of course. That's a big thing for him. But uh, who's to say that they wouldn't become interested in some of the Canadian-based uh, charity, charitable foundations that uh, might need a boost from someone who carries their profile and their cachet? So... I think the positives outweigh the negatives, and that's why John Horgan yesterday was pretty pumped about them coming here, mm-hmm. um, basically potentially setting up shop right, almost right next door to him in, uh, out in the outskirts of Victoria. And again, he says he and Justin Trudeau were joking about how they were giddy about the prospect of the Royals coming here, which was sort of a joking reference to that now notorious New York Times article about the frigid wasteland of Canada oh, and how the Canadians are giddy about the, the prospects of the Royals coming here. I found that article to be just uh, so tone deaf. Written by a Canadian, too, someone from Montreal. Oh, and uh, it was amazing how tone deaf they could, uh, they could get. It was interesting on Twitter how many people were tweeting the temperature of the sound, they, the towns they were in across Canada, which all were well above freezing, uh, despite the characterization of a barren wasteland and bone-chilling cold. Yeah, the igloos that we all live in. Uh, you often explain things in terms that are very consumable when the topic and the subject matter is very complex, Keith. I, I'm wondering if you may help us sort of Uh, unpack, I guess, uh, what the Premier was talking about at his press conference yesterday with regard to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline project and how he says the project will proceed even with opposition from the Wet'suwet'en. So what happens now? Well, (laughs) talks will continue between the RCMP and and, uh, representatives of the hereditary chiefs up there from time to time. But yesterday, the RCMP uh, cut off access to one of the roads uh, in the leading to the the uh, one of the work sites for the pipeline, but it's going to take more than just tough talk from the premier to resolve this. Uh, this is a festering mess that's been going on for some time. You've got First Nations along the pipeline route. This is a natural gas pipeline, six point six billion dollars, almost seven hundred kilometers long. Twenty First Nations have signed benefits agreements. Uh, that includes a f- five First Nations that are actually members of the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations. But you've got, uh, and those are signed by elected band councils. There is a, one school of thought in First Nations communities that the band councils are creatures of the Indian Act, and they're creatures of colonialism, mm. and therefore rejected as a, as a legitimate uh, tool or, or body. Contrasting that, you've got hereditary chiefs, who are not elected, but represent the community at large. And you've got five hereditary chiefs who are opposed to this pipeline, three of which, uh, who are women, uh, are in support of the pipeline. They claim they've been ostracized because of their support uh, for the pipeline. The Wet'suwet'en admit they are a divided community on this issue, uh, but you've got five hereditary chiefs and their supporters from outside the First Nations community, environmental activists and such, who have gathered there for a couple years now with a protest camp trying to block the construction of the pipeline. The courts have ruled in favor of the pipeline a couple times. Most recently, a Supreme Court judge extended an injunction against the protesters and saying you cannot blockade this pipeline. But uh, And John Horgan yesterday talked pretty tough, saying the rule of law must be obeyed. If a Supreme Court judge makes a ruling, it must be obeyed and it must be upheld. So this is going to come down to potentially a violent confrontation. Uh, It may uh, erupt again in a courtroom at some point, but uh, this is not resolved simply because the Premier took a pretty firm stand yesterday, not a surprising one at all, but it highlights some of the tension that exists within the NDP itself, because on the one hand, it supports the LNG pipeline, 
uh, and it needs it because it, it's connected to the LNG Canada project, which is at the centerpiece of its entire economic strategy, while at the same time it's a firm believer in, as enshrined in the law of First Nations rights, including the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which one of the articles says requires First Nations must be given free, prior, and informed consent must provide free, prior, and informed consent before projects can proceed. We had a discussion with Horgan yesterday. Well, doesn't this mean that there's there's a veto here mm-hmm. uh, by the hereditary chiefs? He rejects that and says, no, that's not how he reads it. He doesn't think they have legal standing here. He thinks UNDRIP can, is not inconsistent with the view that the hereditary chief's position should not be uh, should not be upheld. So it's a, it's a tense situation. It's not going to be resolved uh, anytime soon. We've got a reporter, Sarah McDonald from Global, I think is heading into the camp uh, today. I think she's going to have a report uh, later on on the news hour. But it's, uh, it's a pretty tense situation, and it's going to get even more tense, I think, as time goes on, because this is headed for an inevitable showdown. And within that showdown is that conflict that has divided the indigenous, indigenous communities as well. It, it has, and it's it's, and we've seen this in, in some other projects as well. You know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline has the support of I think more than forty First Nations, but there are a couple, a number of First Nations on the coast that firmly oppose the pipeline. So you've got divisions there. There are two hundred and four First Nations in BC. They do not all speak in, with one voice. They have diverse interests. They have overlapping claims uh, on on one you know particular part of land. You've got rival organizations. Horgan yesterday cited the support for the pipeline from the assembly, which he says exists from the Assembly of First Nations and the First Nations Summit. Um, that uh, and again, that they they view UNDRIP as not possessing a veto. But uh, this is a very complicated situation, and the complexities abound when you get into the inner workings of the politics of First Nations. And that's why this one is is so fascinating on one level, but also troubling on another because it doesn't seem that there's going to be a a sort of a mutually beneficial uh, working out of this uh, of this dispute. It just, just seems that you've got two opposing sides careening at each other, and there's going to be a collision. And in learning more about UNDRIP, uh, BC enacted a law to enshrine that last fall, but the law doesn't doesn't define consent and and no. doesn't it doesn't give veto power on Indigenous communities. And it, it's interesting that that Premier Horgan said yesterday that the law is forward looking and cannot be applied to existing projects. That's right, it's a, and that's a, it's an interesting take by him. But, you know, if you just have to go on social media, look at the statements from the hereditary chiefs and their representatives, they interpret UNDRIP as giving them a veto. And that's the problem with uh, that was, you know, foreshadowed and foretold about one of the challenges UNDRIP would provide. Mm-hmm. Horgan's response to this is that UNDRIP will actually eventually provide certainty uh, and a clearer path to resolution over disputes regarding some resource projects, where in the past, a lot of them just simply get mired in the court system, and you can get some inconsistent court rulings, and nobody really knows what the answer is. So the status quo wasn't working uh, that well in- anyway, so is it actually going to be worse with UNDRIP? And Horgan and the supporters of that say, no, it's not going to be worse, it's going to be better, but it's going to probably take some time before we get to that point. So... To this point, we've been seeing protesters felling trees on the path toward the pipeline to sort of block it. When you say that that this might escalate and and become violent, you know, we're reading sort of inflammatory headlines about snipers. Well, yeah, so the Guardian had an... British newspaper had an unsubstantiated report um, from an... uh, Basically, from an activist mm-hmm. uh, saying that the RCMP had, sh- you know, shoot to kill orders, and uh, 
that's inflamed the situation. The RCMP denied that, and that's absolutely ridiculous. But the language they, that was used in that report has inflamed, I think, the situation. And you, now you've got the RCMP also discovered uh, containers of gasoline uh, covered under, under uh, tent awnings, uh, as well as those trees being felled. So, you know, it's, it's got all the earmarkings of a very tense, potentially violent situation. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. But uh, the emotions attached to this issue are quite unlike other ones we've seen in, in some other disputes. And uh, hopefully, again, cooler heads will prevail. But I wouldn't bet the farm on that. I think this is going to get a little ugly. Keith, as always, thank you for uh, giving us the, the layman's term version that's very consumable. I think it's important that we all stay on top of this. As you said, um, it could escalate at any time and affect our province significantly. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Keith Baldry, it was a pleasure, sir. Take care. I'm Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah. Been looking forward to this segment since I saw this story move. Being a good digital citizen is a, more than a new social catchphrase. It's actually a real thing. It's part of a, a generation of online gamers and those who can't or don't like to go out into the busyness of the community all the time. The cliche of gamers being social outcasts who dwell in basements is just simply untrue. Just check the profitability of esports. Online is an actual community and not a negative one for millions and millions of people. The digital uh, society that is growing by the hour is one that just cannot be poo-pooed by those who want it to go away. So for many who love their online friends as much as their neighborhood crew, it's important to uh, help evolve these perceptions, to acknowledge that there's a balance. And our next guest has been uh, talking about the importance of good digital citizenship for years, Frank. Frankly, you know him well, you love him. Jesse Miller, uh, founder of Mediated Reality, a social media educator, is with us. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jody. You and I love to talk digital citizenship. You've literally calmed my parenting nerves when I worry about the online community because it gets so much negative clickbait. But this story that connects a Texas teenager with his gaming friend in the UK is so cool. I just had to have you on when I saw you tweet it. Well, it's, it's an amazing story, and it's one where we do look at the value relationships in our mediated spaces. Um, and to your introduction point, uh, we, we usually have this stigma, this stereotype around uh, kids who play video games as being recluse and, and not wanting to talk. Uh, and, in, and in this format, actually, the uh, 17-year-old in England, the young man who had a seizure, his parents said he traditionally was very quiet. And so in family spaces and school spaces, you might have somebody who is a little bit more removed from uh, the everyday activities of a busy recess. Uh, but for this individual, he was able to engage a lot of healthy relationships that saved his life. It really is a fascinating story. His name is Aiden Jackson, 17 years old, was talking to an American gamer from his bedroom uh, in, in the UK last month and when he had a fit. So his friend, 20-year-old Daya Lathora from Texas, actually alerted police in the UK. It gives me goosebumps, even though I know the story inside and out. I still think, my gosh, how those parents must have been relieved. First of all, startled to see the police pull up in front of their home, but relieved because they otherwise would never have known. Well, and, and that, that kind of goes to the point of where the comfort level with some parents are when it comes to their kids in tech. Uh, they said in their interview that they were uh, used to having him kind of closed off in his bedroom and mm. that uh, they were used to him being quiet. Um, so for him having a seizure by himself and the idea of checking on your child a couple hours later, uh, not knowing what's going on in the confines of your home, this kind of brings the Internet into that everyday aspect of where our kids connect. Um, I have a couple concerns with this story, though. First and foremost, I'm always interested about 
age and, and closeness in age. Yeah. Uh, these kids are two and a half years separated. So you will see a bit of a commonality and peer group. Uh, at some point, they both were in high school. And this is a young man connecting with somebody who he may have been talking to for years. But one thing parents have to keep in mind here is that your children have the ability to engage with anybody online. Mm. And in that, uh, it's one of those healthy dialogues saying this is close in age. It seems like they have a good relationship. And uh, the one thing that does stand out to me is that even though she didn't have parents' phone numbers to try and call them, she did have his mailing address, which shows you there are a lot of interesting support systems that go into this. You might have a kid who doesn't get a lot of birthday presents because they don't have great friends at school, but they have a friend on the other side of the planet who remembers their birthday and sends them something amazing that they bought off Amazon. And uh, it's one of those things where relationships develop in a variety of ways. We just have to be there for those who are most vulnerable, whether they be the children or the seniors in our life who are uh, uh, reaching out to somebody because they're lonely. It's a really good thing to keep in mind when we uh, are often inundated with the clickbait and the fear-based stories on how people connect online because there is that underbelly like sharing sharing certain information online is a huge no and security is a big piece but if you teach good digital citizenship a la jesse miller um, you can really navigate your way through it's like having a pen pal well, very much. And that, that is that key point. It's like having a pen pal. And I think that's the comfortable place that parents could be with this dialogue is that there was somebody that you were connected with when you were a kid in the 70s or 80s that had your home address. It wasn't that big of a deal to protect that information because it was literally in the phone book. Yeah. Um, but within that, just the way that we've shaped our, our connectivity today, we're a bit more inclined to give a username than a physical address. We're a little bit more inclined to uh, give a profile than a phone number. So with kids who are using these tools and these are young adults who are connecting in a different way, they may have found their life partner uh, 5,000 kilometers away or they found the person who's willing to call the emergency services and, and say, my friend has a, an issue and you need to listen to me. It's interesting because how often have we been asked, hey, what's your postal code? And you, know, you just throw down your postal code. It's like your postal code gives exactly where you live. Like exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and to that point of just, you know, the fear of what's, what's somebody going to do, do with I think that. Yeah. That's the benefit of the relationship, right? They, yeah. they feel comfortable because it's a healthy dialogue. Every time I went to the Gap, I gave them my postal code. You know, come <laughs> on. Uh, hey, what is this crazy OK Boomer story out of Vermont? What's in the water in Vermont? So there's a, uh, a Democratic senator from Vermont who is a, a firm Second Amendment rights advocate. And uh, in, in the state of Vermont, you have to be over 21 to purchase a firearm. He believes that it should be dropped down to 18. So what he's doing is he's positioning a bill stating that uh, anybody under 21 who owns a phone could be fined. Uh, and he's, he's realistic in this. He's saying that the phone is as equally dangerous as it comes down to uh, anything. But he's pointing out that if we can trust a child uh, who's 18 to 21 or a young adult with a, with a phone where they could text and drive or they can bully somebody, they should have equal access to purchasing a firearm. And it's a, it's a non-starter in, in any dialogue, but it is getting attention. It is quite the story. Uh, again, another reason to follow Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality on Twitter. I am always very appreciative of you giving us some of your time on the program. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Jody. Hey, for listeners, go to StoryHive, smash forward. You're going to hear a little bit more about our gaming community in Vancouver, and it's one of those things where parents can bridge the gap with their kids. Say it again, StoryHive? 
story hive, look up Smash Forward. You'll see some really neat kids and, and young people in BC who are doing some great stuff with esports. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah this week. And while the New York Times thinks we're all giddy across the country about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex desire to vacation and now possibly move to Canada, at least part time, we are in fact not giddy because there's a lot to consider, like taxpayer dollars on security. We've talked a bunch about that. Still getting emails on that, Jody at cknw.com. How about having the Royals move in next door? That might impact the area both positively and possibly negatively. Would they buy? Will they lease? Is it going to be Toronto? Is it going to be coming, you know, to the West Coast? Oh, I have somebody with the finger on the pulse. Let's talk it through with our good friend and West Coast realtor, uh, Sarah Daniels with McDonald Realty. Sarah, thanks for making the trek in here on a snowy day. I can't believe it's snowing already. I know. They lied to me. It. They lied to me. I thought it was this afternoon. I got to pay better attention. Nonetheless. Well, just listen to CKNW. We'll I keep know, you in the I know, know. I know. I know. You've heard Sarah on CKNW. You've spent a great deal of time working in broadcast media, but now you are back here on the West Coast mm-hmm. after a little sojourn to Toronto. A little east, east side uh, Express, and now I'm back. Absolutely. Love having you back. And you, you have a listing in front of you in your hot little hands. Tell us everything you know well, about okay, this. Okay, so this is, and I obviously I'm not going to say the address because, no, I mean, well, no. and, but sadly, unfortunately, you know, the international media already does. And I think that this is the nice thing about us as Canadians is because as much as we are interested in it and as much as we talk about it, we also want to respect their privacy. This right. is half of the reason that they want to come to Canada because you know how we are as Canadians. There's stars in Vancouver all the time. We see them, we might kind of let, point at them. Maybe. maybe, maybe, maybe try and take a photo, you know, discreetly. Yeah. But we're not in their face. Or and we'll I think, just look and say, "Hey, I saw them. I did exactly that. Yeah. I walked by Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. Couldn't oh, wow. be a bigger fan of both. Yeah. Thought about taking out my phone, and then I thought, no, they're holding hands and they're smiling and they're absolutely adorable. And I want them to continue having this moment, and I'll remember their faces. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing. So uh, currently, um, the situation is, and apparently through the aid of David. Foster and his wife, Catherine McPhee, uh, they did find this uh, property, which is in North Saanich. So it's a, it's about uh, five to eight kilometers away from the uh, Van, uh, Victoria International Airport. Ooh, convenient. And it's on a little bit of a peninsula, um, which is actually really nice for them. Now, of course, they, they have rented it, whether this is going to turn into a lease situation, which is my guess. I think that because, um, you know, because of the tax situation for them personally, I think that they're going to maintain their primary residence, obviously, in England, and that they will be, like, as a visitor status in in Canada, it makes sense. It's it's easier for them taxation wise. There may be some little side trips on that because obviously I'm not a tax lawyer, right. but it makes sense. And we're not immigration specialists. And we're not either, in, immigration so. specialists either. But I know people are talking about Vancouver, and I know people are talking about Toronto. To me, it makes more sense that they will stay in the Metro Victoria area for two reasons. First of all, they are already close to the Victoria International Airport. It's a much easier airport for them to access. Security-wise, this property is 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 quite. Uh, it's like I said, it's on a little contained. Peninsula. It's contained, yeah. so it's very difficult for somebody to breach that privacy. But is it though? If it's a peninsula surrounded well, by water, it, it is surrounded seems... by water. But you can have cameras easily, and it, and the right. thing is, as soon as you are above the high tide line, you are t- technically trespassing. So you know there could be boats and everything, but if you have a view of the property, which I do as I look at it right now, there's trees all around the perimeter, so right. there is that opportunity to have. 
have privacy. How much is the property worth? Uh, it was last listed, I believe, at about f- uh, $14 million. I did check on... $14 million. I, 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 believe, I believe so, because I remember looking online, and again, obviously I have access to different sites than the general public does. Um, the most recent listings have been deleted. The last listing that I have available to me was from 2012 when it was listed uh, substantially higher, but it is... Uh, it's it's a very very large home. The main the main home is about eleven thousand square feet. The guest house wow. is about two or three thousand square feet. The other reason, I mean, aside from the fact that they also, when you consider where they've been living in England, so they moved out of Kensington Palace, right out of the downtown of London, right, and they've moved down to Windsor, so Frog to Frogmore Cottage, right. Victoria Saanich, that is a very similar kind of place when you think about it, right? I mean, why, you know, they could have stayed in Kensington Palace. They could they have had, had a big bit of, apartment redone, they, right? They could have had yeah. a bigger apartment redone. Yeah. They could have, you know, booted out Prince and Princess Michael and taken their place. Apparently that was on the table. Yeah. But instead they moved down to Windsor Frogmore Cottage because they do in fact like that privacy. If they were to be in Vancouver, the security issues would become just that more problematic. Same with Toronto. When you think of just how they would get to and from an airport. Yeah. When when you say it that way, Sarah, we're with Sarah Daniels, by the way, real estate agent with McDonald Realty and a good friend of mine. She's uh, she's my realtor. There you uh, go. I mean, it's been ages so, since I, I purchased, but I still love it so much. And you're not, so allowed, much, and you're not, not allowed, allowed to sell. sell it. We already know that. But it's it as you're speaking to this, it makes the logistics sense. of being in Vancouver, they'd kind of be captive in an area that was walled, Absolutely. where this is more walled by nature. When you think about it, yeah. too, is the, their proximity right now to the Vancouver International Airport means it's a five, ten minute drive to the airport. She can or he can skip across to Vancouver. Oh, very, Victoria, very, when you're excuse speaking. Excuse me, yeah. Victoria International. Yeah, yeah. They can skip back and forth to the mainland very quickly. In fact, apparently she took a, a WestJet plane uh, once she landed on British Airways. She took WestJet over to the island and everybody was... You know, searching to find a private plane that she might be taking. She was on WestJet. I so love that. I think Probably that's, I think that's fantastic. Cap, but again, and she is still an American citizen. She, uh, she still doesn't have her British citizenship. So Victoria to Seattle, quick hop down to L.A. Her mother is in L.A., so it's on the same timeline mm. there. And for privacy concerns, again, she's got fr- lots of friends in Toronto from where she worked for six, seven years. It's easy for them to get here, just as easy as it f- is it for her to visit. People were assuming that because she had broadcast or filmed Suits in in Toronto Toronto and her bestie, Jessica Mulrooney, is there as well. I mean, Toronto, you could could get lost in the anonymity of Toronto. You could, but I think think the security issues for them would be just that much. And honestly, at the end of the day, they said they are stepping back a bit. Everybody seems to think, I, I, I seem to feel that everybody seems to think that they're going to, they, they are going to be here year round. I don't think that's true. I think that they will be here four or five months of the year. They will still continue to do, uh, represent the queen in other countries. I think it'd be very interesting by the time Archie is school age, whether they actually decide, because there are some great schools on Vancouver Island, whether they'd actually decide on a private school or a public school, I could see them leaning towards a public school mm. uh, just because they really want their child to be completely immersed in, in having, the real having world. Having the real world And, world and as much as yeah. there's great private schools on the island, you know, maybe they're child will go to a public school. And we were chatting about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, and when they visited here over Christmas... Six full weeks. Six full they weeks. They were here the entire time, apparently. No side trips. They're smart. No, they are smart. It's beautiful here. Why wouldn't you Why come wouldn't here? Why wouldn't you come here? Yeah. And I like the fact that out of that visit, there were no paparazzi shots. None. None we, whatsoever. Talk and to Keith Baldry, who 
is based in Victoria. Absolutely. They knew where they were. Yes. Nobody was tracking them down. Hey, I mean, you and I, I mean, I've, I've got the sheet. We, I, you know where they are now. I do. I, I've, I've got their address. Would we ever say anything? No. Not a chance. Nobody, I mean. Because I wouldn't want somebody from not here to come flying well, in trying to find them. And and we want them to enjoy their time here. I yes. mean, the thing is, I mean, there's a general, obviously, the media in general has a pretty good idea for the most part where they are. Um and that's fine. But, but we're Canadian. We're cool about it. We're Canadian. And the thing is, as I pointed out before, this property, which is a large property, does have, just because of where it's situated, a, a, a good amount of privacy. And so it would be very difficult for anybody to access the property or get, or get paparazzi shots, for that matter. Very difficult. The other thing, as I was going to say, is that because this property is close to Vancouver, uh, excuse me, I keep on saying Vancouver, but Victoria International Airport, you know how paparazzi loves helicopters and all that kind of stuff? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Victoria was able to say, okay, there's no low-flying, mm-hmm. you know, so there's not going to be any of that kind of stuff going on either. No hovering you're, just well, above. They are in a flight plan, like, you yep. know, technically in a flight plan. So there's, when I used to fly in the eye in the sky here. Yes, you did, you traffic All those days ago, we were, we were in a plane, you. and uh, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, fly between the Alex Fraser Bridge, like over the Alex Fraser Bridge down to Boundary Bay Airport where we used to fly because we were right in the jet zone, right? right. So we had to go all the way down to the Port Man and then out. Interesting. I know. So I, they yeah. could do a little of that. So they could Victoria. do a little bit of that too. So they've got their privacy. Which would make security costs cheaper because that's the big debate now is, uh, you know, will taxpayers be on the hook for the security costs? But for the, I understand for, that. But, you know, I always think that the amount of positive that they bring into the economy totally. versus, I mean, it's, it's the same old argument and I'm sure that people will phone and I will be gone and you'll have to answer those My phone emails calls and you're, as, and, we and, as we talk. But, yes. but the thing is, I, and I know people complain about the Royals in general about that, but the thing is that they are, I mean, England is a huge tourism trap. I mean, as, draw. If you want, it's a big yeah. draw. I mean, and mostly because people are fascinated with the Royals. Yep. I mean, nobody's talking about, and it's this set of Royals. Nobody's talking about the King and Queen of Sweden or Spain. I mean, no. maybe Hello Magazine is on like page 55, but for the most part, it is the British Royals that have remained sort of this this global phenomenon. So, so with these Royals, with Harry and Meghan, who yesterday here on the program, um, Claire Allen and I were going through the Buzz, uh, BuzzFeed um, right. Headlines of how both Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle had been covered. Right, it is no huge surprise why she's been. Meghan Markle is just being treated abysmally. She has, and you got to understand Harry's position. Yeah. his mom died because he was being chased. By, she well, was being chased by paparazzi. On top of which, everybody's trying to blame her. Harry has been an outlier and has wanted to do his 100%. own thing long before Miss Markle came into the uh, equation. The but Duchess now came into the baby. equation, and now there's an. Adorable little baby. Right. I love that Christmas card. But even that Christmas card that they sent out, that email card that they sent out, uh, somebody apparently photoshopped it so her picture was in, in much starker uh, contrast and showed up better than Harry did in the background of that picture. And they said that mean. she was manipulating yeah. the photo. It's just all so awful. So let's know? talk about how they can have a better time. Maybe she's listening right now. Welcome. We want you here if you Please want to enjoy. be a part of our society we and enjoy you. Canadians. Yes. Be kind. Uh, comfortable in the home that is speculated that they have, what, bought or leased? Well, you know, I don't even, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think that they will buy anything. It doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, it's much easier for them to lease and change about where they're going to be if they find an issue. you got to also remember that the property that we're talking about, if it was on the market right now, would be on the market for like $14, $15 million, let's call it. Um, that's a lot, of, a lot of capital to chew up. Then there's taxes, which will be about seventy five dollars to $100,000 a year. And then there's maintenance, which is a whole... 
whole, lot. which is a whole lot. I mean, they are they are a very wealthy couple, but it is a a certain type of wealth that can afford to have that as a secondary home and do the maintenance. So it seems that it would be much more likely that they would lease it. This apparently it was done with the aid of David Foster and Catherine Catherine McPhee, his wife, as we talked about earlier. So it, it's hard to even know whether they're actually paying for this. They may just be paying for the maintenance of right. the property while they're there and the utilities because they have that certain kind of wealth. Because because it's because <laughs> yeah. it's literally like okay, yes. you know, we'll let you in and here, here's the keys, but you're paying for the gas. Waterfront property, North Saanich. How many square feet did you say? The again? actual main house is about 11,000 square feet. I believe, hold on, I'm going to go back and take another look. So here, a lease it? on something, 11,000 square feet. I'm trying to wrap my head is, around. The guest house is 2,400 square feet and it's three bedrooms and two baths. The main home... I believe it doesn't say here, but I'm pretty, oh yeah, it's 11,000 square feet because it says the total finished square footage for the property is 14,561. Yeah. So at least, uh, like, what is that, $50,000 a month? Uh, it would be, I would think that you'd be looking at forty to $50,000 a month uh, as a lease property. As a realtor, what would the property around where this home is how would it be impacted? Would it be positive or negative to have royals living in your neighborhood? Well, you know, the thing is that so far, it seems that it has been kind of like a wash. Like, nobody's been complaining. I Nobody mean, cares. you know, apparently the, the one one person that was stopped on the street said, well, it seems that there's more people out walking their dogs. <laughs> but it was also with the Christmas holidays, so that could explain for the extra people at home walking the dogs. I, I don't think anybody's trying to peer through the fences that are local. If anything, it would probably be, they, it might be a little bit of annoyance for parking issues. And uh, if in fact, like some of the British press, the more aggressive press from the United States is trying to access it, I think that what'll happen is it'll be, they'll they'll put in some parking regulations and that'll pretty much, you know, no loitering and that'll pretty much be the end of it. But honestly, I mean, the British press could hang around out front and the US press could hang around out. out. They're not going to get any pictures. There's, there's no access viewpoint for them to get any pictures. And it's very that private. is why they, I'm sure, chose it. Chose that piece of property. Absolutely. It is going to be a fascinating uh, unfolding story. People are emailing Jody at cknw.com. I'll be reading your emails in, in a few minutes here because they're... Don't uh, yell at her. I helped start this whole yeah. thing about the Royals should be here and we like them. So. I can I can take it. I can take it because I'm sort of <laughs> sitting in a neutral spot because my initial reaction was they should be able to do whatever they want. Exactly. Period. Because they're humans on this planet. And they see seem like good people. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't know them, no. but they should be able to. And I, I love it here. Why wouldn't they love it exactly. here? Like that's the other thing. I was just hoping, please don't do the Oprah thing in Maui and no. buy up everything in Tofino and then make it inaccessible yeah, to the people well, that and, have loved it. And here's the they're thing not is, doing they're not doing that because here's the thing is they, they're the overall wealth of the Royal family is huge, but Harry and Meghan's wealth between the two of them is probably about 50 million US. That's just not enough to be buying up all of Maui. North, North Saanich or, or Maui for that or matter. Or Tofino. That's what I was thinking yeah. is don't take, I, I hope that our, our beautiful jewels of the West Coast, the big old growth forest, the, the spots that are that's sort of not hidden away for the locals aren't inundated and overrun with people trying to no. grab a glimpse of the Royals. Okay. So if you've got an opinion on this, maybe you like I'm getting a lot of the negative. Uh, um, really? Well, people, I, I'm a pensioner on a fixed income and a small work pension. My home is slowly becoming inundated with homeless, desperate people. I have security to protect my person and property. I must say if Harry and Megan, who make my, more money in one day than I make in a month, have their security paid for by taxpayers of Canada, then why does my country not pay for mine? Uh, that's what Annie says. That's, that's one understandable. Of 15, right? But so that, people are coming at it but that's from a also, pragmatic That's position. a provincial and social economic issue too. That's almost a no, whole no. new... 
it's bringing it. It's bringing yeah. it to the, the surface, though. Yeah. People are feeling yeah. overwhelmed by tax in yeah. British oh, Columbia. Yeah. This just in, right? Yeah, exactly. Sarah Daniels, always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, give us an idea of what you're working on and where you're. And I was going to say, by the way, uh, it's just a couple of weeks away. I can't remember the actual date, but the empty homes tax. You have to fill out your forms if you're a homeowner. Make sure you get that in. It's it's Did beginning it online. Of Fe- Did you do it online? That's yeah. the beginning of February, and everybody has to do it. So just an FYI, it's kind of like it's one of those things where you have to opt out. Yeah. If you if you forget to, it's hard to They'll, undo. It's it's very hard to yeah. undo, and that's one percent of the assessed value of your property. For those of you in Vancouver. So that's a lot of money. money. So if your house is assessed at a million dollars, they want $10,000 for one year of of uh, empty home tax. Only got 30 seconds, but you're basically um, working out of uh, South Surrey White Rock. South Surrey White Rock, but I do all over the Lower Mainland. Um, Easy to find. So my office number, if you need it, 604-542-2444. Gotcha. McDonald Realty. McDonald Realty. We love her. Sarah Daniels, always giving us Thank you for having me. Just the best. Love hanging out with you. That's in for Simi Sarah this week. And oh boy, is my email inbox ever filling up with... With your reaction to the concept of Canadian taxpayers needing to foot the bill for Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle uh, living at least part-time in our neck of the woods. Security details are nothing new. Um, Certainly politicians, former politicians, uh, Canadians are paying... What does George Affleck say? A cup of coffee. It's just a cup of coffee a day for each of us. But those cups of coffee seem to be adding up and people are extremely frustrated at the thought of a pair of royals who are deciding to step away from that royal lifestyle, I guess, and and live as the common folk do in this beautiful neck of the woods, um, are still going to be funded to some degree by the Canadian taxpayer. I'm sure that Aaron Woodrick, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, has a thing or two to say about that, and that's why uh, Aaron joins me now. Hello there. How are you doing, Jody? I'm doing very well, thank you. I am busy reading emails and taking buzzline calls on this. People are really upset about it. Yeah, you and me both. I mean, my email box has been blowing up about this issue. If you'd asked me two weeks ago that this would be on the radar in 2020, I'm not sure would have said yes. But I can tell you, I think it boils down to this, Jody. People understand that when they they come and visit, uh, we pay for the royals. It's just a courtesy like we do for any dignitary. Uh, But a lot of people are scratching their heads about why we should be on the hook to pay for a lifestyle choice if they want to move here permanently. In other words, Harry and Meghan are welcome to come here, uh, but they should be paying their own way. And that seems to be sort of the overwhelming sentiment, because uh, we know that we're on the hook for a royal visit. They do great things for our economy. People spend more money. People come here to be a part of that visit. There is sort of an offset to it. But could could we maybe not be seeing the upside of this and just be focusing on this negative? Yeah, and I don't even think it's a dollars and cents thing. There's a lot of range about how much it would cost. But I think just a lot of people are put out by the idea that, remember, these are people with significant assets, the idea that regular people would have to bankroll them. If you think about other types of celebrities, I mean, you know, in this, this is a hockey mad country, there are hockey superstars. It's not like taxpayers pick up the tab if they have private security, right? So if the royals, uh, you know, if they're going to come here and, it, and they want to have it both ways, they want to be private citizens, but also enjoy the benefits uh, that royals get back home, which is everything paid for by taxpayers, I think a lot of people are saying you can't have it both ways. So by all means, come here. You're welcome. But uh, you said you want to be financially independent. 
So you'd walk, you should walk the walk on this. And Aaron, that's really the, the quote that got, got me from the press release that you put out on behalf of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, where you said true financial independence cannot be achieved if Canadian taxpayers are still paying the bills. Yeah, and you know, it's still not clear what they mean when they say financial independence. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, Jody, I, I wish them all the best. It's not personal. It's no, 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 of will. course, of course. I, I hope they can achieve their, their goal here. But I, I like to think they also recognize, you know, we have, and we have no idea if they're expecting uh, taxpayers to pay the bill. But I would like to think that since they have stated their ambition is to be financially independent, they would understand that that means that also paying your own way. I was talking with uh, Keith Baldry earlier uh, on the program about this, uh, because it it seems to me that we are making a very, very big deal about Prince Harry and uh, the Duchess Meghan Markle, while John Horgan has two RCMP officers with him at all times when he is uh, on official business. That's true, and of course we've got the Prime Minister and other uh, premiers in the country have security. I think the, the point there, I mean, the Governor-General is probably the best example I here, right? It's, say, a, yeah. it's a royal representative, uh, but the Governor-General, she plays a formal role in her political system. The, the reason that the, uh, the Duke and Duchess situation is so unique is that we've never really had a situation where a, a member of the royal family is considering living on our soil permanently, and so the issue of cost has never really arisen. Uh, but I can tell you, and, and again, I would have not have guessed it was the opposition would be this strong, mm. but there are not very many issues in the in the last year or two where I've got this much correspondence, and it's overwhelmingly against the idea of taxpayers putting the bill. I have people so uh, upset that they're like, "Can you please uh, t- say the spelling of your name with your email address, Jody with a Y at cknw.com? Because somebody had to actually look up how to spell my name in order to get her frustrated email into my inbox on this topic. They're not mad at me; they're just saying we have so many other things that we need to pay for in this country, and it's costing us a fortune and not getting those things done. I mean, on the other side of this interview, I'll be talking to First Call BC as they've released their child poverty report card for BC. I mean, we have realistic, harsh social issues that we are not fixing here, and this is layered on top of it. I think that's where the frustration is coming from. I agree with you, Aaron, that I don't think this is personal against Harry and Meghan, but when we're seeing like New York, New York Times articles saying that all Canadians are giddy about it, it's like, well, we're not exactly giddy. We're welcoming, but we'd rather yeah, not pay for not it. Get, yeah, yeah, we're maybe not giddy about the possibility of us paying for it, right? Yeah. Again, uh, we, you know, we all pay our taxes because they're important things we want that money to pay for, mm-hmm. uh, programs and services. And the idea that you know, with all the other needs, all the other things that regular Canadians are struggling to get, that some of this money that we can find a few million dollars lying around to bankroll you know, security for the Duke and Duchess, a lot of people are saying, no, we've, we've got more important things we need to spend that money. Okay, so Aaron, have you started a petition on this? We absolutely have. Uh, If you want to check it out, it's at our website at taxpayer.com. We just launched it a couple hours ago, but uh, I have a feeling you're going to hear uh, from us again in a couple of days about the numbers uh, being pretty significant. Well, you keep in touch with me. I'd be very interested to hear how many Canadians weigh in on that petition, Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. Uh, glad to have you along for the ride. I am getting all of your emails. Uh, definitely talking about the topic of royal security and whether or not Canadian taxpayers should be on the hook for this. I'm, I'm pleased to see that there are some people that are chiming in going, relax, everybody, relax, because there was a lot of vitriol early on in my inbox with people just mad about it. But one of the uh, notes that came through, this one from Marg, said, Jody, I like the royals, but if Prince Harry and Meghan want to live their own lives, 
then they pay for everything. His mother left an estate, use it. This is their choice. Wasn't there someplace in England, Scotland, Wales, they could have lived on their own? We have children here in BC going to school without breakfast and lunch. They do not have proper clothing for this cold weather. No, we, no, we need to help our BC children living in poverty. That from Peggy. Peggy, thank you. That is the perfect reply email to introduce our next guest. Uh, joining me in studio is Adrian Montani, the Provincial Coordinator, First Call, uh, BC Child and Youth Advocacy uh, Coalition. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. There is the annual report. The new report uh, has come out today, the First Call BC Child Poverty Report Card. How do you read this report card this year, Adrian? Um, I guess with some disappointment that after 30 years of promising we'd end child poverty in Canada, um, that we still have one in five children in BC poor. So when we think about one in chi- one in five, um, somebody might go, well, at least it's not two. It's like, but one's too many. <laughs> yes. And uh, when you dig beneath that, so that's 164,000 children. And then when you dig beneath that, uh, one in two children who live in single parent families are poor. Wow. Over 50%, 53% of the poor children in this province live with single parents. So this this is a systemic issue that points to what some things we need to do to better support mostly mothers. These are mostly female-led families. Having been in a single-parent environment, my mother uh, was raising my brother and I in the early 70s with very little in way of support. In fact, it was frowned upon that she was divorced and living on her own, never mind, didn't have childcare services available. And it was very, without our family's support, mm-hmm. we would not have made it the way we did. And, and certainly I'm here to tell you that my mom is a champion uh, and now has been happily married to my stepdad for, for many years. But knowing what she survived, and I think about somebody living in the affordability crisis of today mm-hmm. with the issues of trying, I mean, trying to have a job and having childcare that doesn't eclipse the job mm-hmm. is massive. It's a big deal. And not everybody has the family support. Exactly. Some people are lucky and can call on that. But again, we go back to single parents. They don't have another earner. Uh, if childcare exceeds the cost of what they can earn, what are they supposed to do here? So, yeah, yeah. so it's, that's, a, that's a big issue. What are some things in your learning experience, uh, Adrian, that we could do mm-hmm. to change these stats, to look at this report and say, okay, you know what? 2020, this is the year. Mm-hmm. This is the year we change it. What do we need to do as a society, Well, as I mean, a government? Yeah, yeah. poverty is, a, is an income problem. So this is, these are stats about people not having enough money. They also have really high costs, and that's not even captured in this data. So there's, there's action needed on both sides, and I know government is looking at those things. Uh, so certainly childcare is a big issue, again, not just for single parents, but for two couple families as well with children. So finding quality childcare, being able to afford it. Government started in uh, both some federal and provincial investments, but I think BC has really stepped up to try and, and invest in early childhood, and we're looking for that public childcare system that looks like a public education system that doesn't cost parents an arm and a leg. So uh, good on them for starting it. It's not showing up in the stats yet because we're still in the beginning stages. It feels slow to be implemented because I remember viscerally when John Horgan was speaking to it as a main campaign promise. Mm -hmm. And certainly it takes a great deal of time Mm -hmm. because you need to find the people to actually be qualified and and run these childcare facilities that we're trying to open up. Is there a way that could expedite that? 
Again, I think they're trying, um, yeah. but they, they really need to look at the wages of uh, wage supplements or the, the wages of early childhood educators. If you, if you can't recruit in, a, in our society, it's because you're not paying enough, probably, for yeah. those jobs. And so people can't, who don't make enough to even put their children in childcare, like, are, they're going to look at for other options. So we need to increase wages for early childhood educators, respect the, the work that they do, and that will help with recruitment. I know they're trying to open up more spots, but they won't fill them if, they, if people don't see a career path that's family supporting wage. So that's really important. And that's a key piece. And we can look, you know, just across the country because Quebec has this figured out. Yes, they do. Yeah. They have a much better uh, publicly funded system. It's not perfect, but it's definitely way ahead of us. And it doesn't cost parents an arm and a leg in the same way. Um, The other side of it is, I mean, I want to mention, so most poor children do live with parents who work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the wage issue, of course. Uh, And precarious work, you know, uh, people need jobs with benefits especially if they have children, those kinds of things. Uh, and then there's the minority of children, but a very important minority of children who live on income assistance. Again, mostly mother-led families on disability. That's where the bulk of the children are. And those parents can't work because they have a disability of some sort or another. And the, the rates, the welfare incomes are just so small, so low. So they're way below. So both when you combine all the, the poor kids in the province and you look at their parents' income, whether it's those on win- income assistance or the majority that are working, they are usually uh, on average ten to $14,000 below the poverty line. Wow. So, so we're talking like significantly food insecure. Yes. And not able to pay rent. And we know rents are really high. And yeah, not able to cover healthcare costs, not able to afford a bus pass. So that social exclusion that happens, let alone the health effects of just even the stress of trying to decide, can I afford another winter jacket for my child or do I buy milk? That's the kind of uh, income insecurity and food insecurity that these families are facing. We are with Adrian Montani, who's the Provincial Coordinator, First Call, uh, BC Child and Youth Advocacy Coalition. And uh, I think that is an excellent reminder, especially on a day like today when we're looking out our windows and wondering what would it be like to not have... The, the clothing required mm-hmm. to be out of doors okay. in this. Uh, we think about the homeless community, certainly. Um, I've been talking a great deal about the uh, Overdose Prevention Society and how you can drop off there. Blanketbc.org is a great mm-hmm. resource to get to get blankets to, to homeless people. But what if people who aren't in that category but are just a, a breath away from there? Yes. Yeah, and there are many families you don't see as much street homelessness with children. Right. But they're couch surfing, they're... um they're, they're very afraid to be visible because they're afraid their children so could like be apprehended. Taken away. So, so they're hiding in vehicles. Yeah. How can we help? Yeah. Um, government needs to do more of what it's doing just a little bit faster, accelerate for that government. So making affordability in childcare and housing, those are two big issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, income supports for those on disability and income assistance, raise the rates. Uh, and then all of us, <laughs> we generally then that, so government's a big employer and a big contractor, but there are, you know, there's a whole private sector out there beyond the public sector, need to pay living wages and look at the kinds of jobs they're creating, and do they have benefits? So that whole issue of precarious work is really starting to show up. Um, the affordability yeah. piece across the board in BC, particularly on the South Coast here, as we've seen you know, property values are out, out of this world and, and trying to even find the workforce to, to mm-hmm. manage. I mean, everybody's working on a razor-thin margin and finding it difficult to pay that extra bit mm-hmm. to keep it. I mean, it, it feels like we're on a, on a sort of um, mouse wheel of trying mm-hmm. to get ahead and 
can't really get ahead. So it's, it's well, where th- do we find you? I'm up yeah. against the clock, but where okay. do we find out more? If we want to help you, how, how does somebody get a hold of you? Uh, our website is firstcallbc.org, uh, First Call BC Child and Youth Advocacy Coalition. The, the report we're talking about is published today on that website or on another one, but I'll just give that one, firstcallbc.org. And we'll be publishing regional fact sheets and maps so people can look at their local circumstances as well. Adrian Montani, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Simi this week. You know, anger is mounting about the icy conditions. You just heard Trish Jewison and Terry Shintz talking about there continuing to be a very big issue on the Trans-Canada Highway between Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. After Sunday's wet snow, Sunday night's deep freeze and uh, into yesterday and right through, we're expecting more to come. Here are some of the calls that we've received on the CKNW buzz line from drivers who were on the road this morning. Yeah, I'm on uh, Highway 1 eastbound. I just passed 232, heading out towards 264. Got to say, I'm really disappointed. There's ice still here. It looks like the road could be really clear. There's no snow, but it doesn't look to me like there's been any salt or sand put down here, and I just flabbergasted at that. I drove in this morning from Chilliwack to Langley, Gloucester Industrial Park, at about 5 o'clock. The highway crews had all night to have graveled all that stretch of road, it was like a skating rink. It was unbelievably poor performance. They didn't have to put salt down. They didn't have to put brine down. They could have sanded, and they should have been sanding. They did nothing. It was it was really, really a bad, bad performance on their part. The only people who really dropped the ball in this snowstorm was the people maintaining Highway 1. Sad. They ought to be fired and sued by ICBC. Certainly frustrated drivers is the overall vibe you get from our buzz line. If you've got uh, something you'd like to say, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Let's connect now with Dave Earle. He's the president of the BC Trucking Association. Joining us now to talk about, uh, Dave, what you've been hearing from your members about the conditions of the roads. You know, what your callers have called in with, uh, that's pretty much exactly what we're hearing from our members is a, a real degree of frustration uh, and disappointment. Um, you know, they, they do understand uh, when we have a weather event how difficult it can be, and this was a particularly difficult event. Uh, but like everybody, uh, I think we're pretty frustrated. And it was yesterday I was speaking with Janet Brown, who actually was speaking with a tow truck operator who had said it, he's never seen semi-trucks with chains on, on the flats, skidding. Is that unusual? <laughs> Extremely. And I think it speaks to the, the, the real peculiarity of this time. I mean, we're relatively used to, as we say, severe or extreme weather events in the lower mainland because every time it snows, it's that horrific, wet, sloppy, freeze, thaw cycle that we get into. Um, this time, as, as, you, as we all know, it was really wet uh, on the weekend. And then we had a very, very aggressive, very quick uh, cold front in that came in and froze everything. Uh, everything that wasn't absolutely cleared off and gone uh, became frozen pretty quickly. Uh, The ministry does have contractual uh, requirements for uh, road maintenance contractors to return pavement to a bare condition within 24 hours uh, of a weather event. Uh, We've spoken with the ministry today, and I'll be meeting with them on Friday to talk about this and and other issues. But uh, part of this is that examination to say, you know, how did this happen? Um, you know, what lessons can we learn from this and uh, how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? So, Dave, you said that you spoke to the ministry today and you're meeting again on Friday. What, is, what was your message in that conversation to the Ministry of Transportation? Uh, 
really saying, you know, uh, what's going on and, uh, you know, how can we make sure this doesn't happen? Because uh, the, the first and primary concern of our, our members in our industry is the safety of everybody on the road, uh, including commercial drivers. Uh, and when we have conditions uh, that are, are extraordinarily uh, slippery, uh, you know, we say, how did this, you know, how did this happen? Uh, we think we know. Uh, we, you know we think it's, it's the pace and the, how quickly everything froze. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, say that, that we can tolerate this to happen again. And, mm. uh, you know, what do we do to mitigate it? Uh, what additional steps can we take? Um, because really, it was, uh, it's been a real serious disruption. Our Janet Brown has been working diligently to get to the bottom of what exactly has happened here, whether we were taken by surprise overall in terms of uh, road preparedness. Uh, there's been discussion about how the saline solutions weren't working because the, it was so rainy and then um, salting wouldn't work. It would just be washed away. But in that Buzzline call, you heard a number of those drivers say, where's the gravel? Where's the sand here? And having spent 10 years in Ontario, that was the big piece in those roads that were really perpetually covered in snow and ice for a number of months in the winter. Uh, and, and pretty much it was about sand and almost to the level of gravel. Are we, are we not able to put that down under these conditions? Yeah, and that's one of the questions that we'll be asking and working with the ministry on saying, you know, why wasn't that done or what was done? Mm. Um, it's not always as simple as, as I would like to think it would be uh, in terms of what we put down. And, and I honestly don't know uh, what, if anything, was put down. Uh, but yeah, those those suppositions are, are probably pretty accurate in terms of the rain that we have washing away, not only the salt, but also any gravel that was put down. But then, of course, we get into... Now that it's been a day or two, you know, what do we do in these circumstances? So it's uh, it's certainly a situation that we're really, really alive to. And we'll be working with the ministry and the service providers uh, to get a better understanding and say, seriously, you know, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Keep everybody safe. Dave Earl is the president of the BC Trucking Association. Um, we're expecting more snow in the next 24 hours. Does the association have sort of a, a plan or a message to drivers if road conditions continue to be uh, this poor or even worse? Absolutely. First and foremost is to make sure that you slow down. Mm. That's for every driver, including commercial drivers, uh, and to be prepared to make sure that you've got the proper tires on your vehicles, to make sure that you've got traction control devices, and frankly, that you take a look at the situation that you're driving in and ask yourself, do I really need to go? Right. Uh, I'm sitting in downtown Vancouver now. The snow's coming down pretty heavily. Um, and the question becomes is, uh, you know, do I need uh, for myself to get home tonight? Well, yeah, but I've got other ways I can get there. So uh, that'll be an evaluation you have to make. That is a good piece of advice. Weigh the urgency of how quickly or if at all you need to get to where you're planning on going, I guess, is the message here. Absolutely. And uh, if you do choose to go, make sure you're equipped and slow down. Slow down. Leave lots of space between you and the vehicles in front of you. Even if you've got no one in front of you. I was going off the uh, ramp off of the Granville Street Bridge. Hadn't been cleared. Had a good, thick bunch of ice on it. And I thought, you know, if I don't navigate this properly, I could easily go into this guardrail with nobody around me. It would just be a really crappy way to end my day. Absolutely, Jody. Absolutely. So let's keep that top of mind. Dave, keep us posted, please, on uh, the next couple of days. Uh, we will keep our lines of communication open to you and to the you BC bet. Trucking Association. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. 
Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah, and I am so thrilled my sister from another mister is in studio with me, Sun and Province columnist, Global News Morning contributor, Dana G, here to talk movies. Hello. I want to talk boots right now, actually. I just walked in here. (laughs) Actually, I shouldn't complain. It's nice. I don't mind the snow. I'm really glad that you trekked here across the frozen tundra. Across all the way from East Van Halen. I made it here. It's not... Oscar time. It's not nomination time if I don't connect with you. This is sort of our annual thing Mm -hmm. that we do. Let's dive right into it, okay? Uh, Yesterday was the early morning uh, Mm -hmm. nominations. We watched you on Global Morning News, as we always do. But I wanted to have you in studio to have the chat about it. But here are the... uh, We're going to take you through the audio of the actual announcements. If you were up, I don't know, what is it, 5.30 in the morning when they do this? It's stupid. Uh, Okay, here we go. Uh, Best Supporting Actress. Members of the Academy's Actors Branch nominate these performances by an actress in a supporting role. Kathy Bates in Richard Jewell. Laura Dern in Marriage Story. Scarlett Johansson in Jojo Rabbit. Florence Pugh in Little Women. And Margot Robbie in Bombshell. He, an interesting category that is kind of all over the map. Um, of course, though, it's it's lacking, as uh, most of the Oscars are this year, anybody of color. Diversity is, like, gone from these Oscars. Well, it's a it's a association of a bunch of old white guys, too. You have right. to keep that in mind. Um, this is an interesting one for me. I really think that it's Laura Dern's, uh, because if you lead up with the Golden Globes and all the other nominations, the SAG Awards are coming up on the 19th. And I love Laura Dern. I just think she's great. She's had sort of this resurgence in the last couple of years. So, And she was, the be- for me, was pretty much the best thing about Marriage Story. Like, I liked that movie, but I didn't lose my mind over it like everybody else did but she plays this really tough lawyer in it so yeah I think it's hers um, Scarlett Johansson this is kind of a record breaker for her to be nominated yeah. here as well as what we'll be getting to next and uh, she's never up. been nominated before never. no there's been no best looking in a cat suit contest <laughs> yet I shouldn't say can I say that now you I can, can say, say whatever you're I not, want you're not a Marvel fan well I know I'm not a Marvel fan I get no. bored to death of it yeah. uh, but I shouldn't say she's a, she's a wonderfully talented actress but yes this is the first time she's ever been nominated and she's going to we'll talk about it in a minute too but she's also been nominated in best actress so right. so right out of the gate if you're going to get nominated you might, might as well go big or stay home so she's got two there, so you, there go. you go it is her oscars at this point mm-hmm. um what about margot robbie and, and bombshell Mm-hmm. Bombshell. Have you seen Bombshell? I have not yet. Okay. Well, of all of us women that work in media, we you know we jump to these stories right away and and you know basically want to see these guys uh, pushed out the door. Uh, it was. It I was, would agree with that. I would agree with that. Agree I'm going to go out on a limb and mm-hmm. say sexual harassment is bad. Yes. Um, but. I like the uh, limited series better, um, The Loudest Voice in the Room with Russell Crowe, better than I like this film. Yeah. I thought the film didn't didn't go deep enough into that. And she, and she she's fantastic, don't get me wrong. She's one of my favorite um, actors right now in this day. She can do anything. But I just, loved her in Once Upon a Time. Oh, yeah. No, she's great. But she, she, just, she just didn't leave me with, you know, I just think that Laura Derns was a bigger one. And Kathy Bates, too, it would be a great surprise because she was fantastic in Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell. Okay, let's get to the next category, mm. Best Supporting Actor. The nominees for performance by an actor in a supporting role are Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Anthony Hopkins in The Two Popes, Al Pacino in The Irishman, Joe Pesci in The Irishman, and Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, first of all, like, doesn't that like seem like a category that should have been from like 20 years ago? Yes. Two? It's like the, the first one. Could I mean, it be whiter? Well, and it's just also, they're all so old. Tom they're Hanks, old. Anthony Hopkins, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. Yeah, this is a 1982 list. And Brad Pitt list. is now, too. Brad Pitt's considered a, you know, kind of a veteran. He's 55. Is he? Yeah. 
But wow. he can still like take his shirt off on a roof in a Tarantino movie, and I'm like Brad Pitt on a roof. Wow, Brad Pitt on he's, a roof. He's it's cute. a no brainer that Brad Pitt's got this one because he's won every award going into it. Uh, he's they've forgotten about him in a bunch of other good things over the years, so this is a no brainer. And everybody, he's sort of on the Brad Pitt um, what, do you, what do you, promotional tour in that he's trying to show us that he's a good guy. He mm-hmm. struggled with his family. It, I mean, but if he tells me one more time how he got sober, yeah. I'm going to drink more because it's just, it's it's called anonymous for a reason. Mm. But I don't but know. But it is, it is a badge know. of courage for somebody when they really I feel like they've done it. I do have a number of really good friends in my world who don't preach it. Yeah. They don't want you to stop drinking, right. but they're going to tell you why no, they're sober. No, I get it. It's so, just yeah, sort of, it's, it's every every speech is given on it. I, I'm, I'm, right. Don't get me wrong. It's I'm like not Joaquin Phoenix and veganism. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Sorry. Did well, I just go I guess we're kind of a little, I'm a little bit reticent of the soapbox stuff and yeah. right now because everybody's got a soapbox, you know, since Twitter's ruined all the fun of it. So anyways, I don't know. Brad Pitt, no brainer, bet on him. I'm he so deserves glad I to get win. to bet on him. He won. He, to, he, he stole that movie. He was the best thing about that movie. Best thing all year. I loved him in it. And you gave me the best advice on that movie. <laughs> I'm going to share it because Dana okay. G is the one that I call. I text and, and check in with <laughs> on all of my movie viewing. And I went early on to a screening of uh, Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. and I was scared because Tarantino movies mm-hmm. are so violent and you gave me the advice of when they go walking up the street at the at, with 25 minutes to go cover your eyes and your ears yeah and it was the best advice I loved the whole movie because I didn't see the part that was way too way too violent for me yeah you got a Quentin Tarantino you've got to know going in you're gonna be uh, disturbed but you didn't ruin the plot oh no I, I well, love that I can't do that no, I don't want you mad at me you're a good good person okay best <laughs> actor in a leading role for performance by an actor in a leading role, the Actors Branch nominates Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory, Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver in Marriage Story, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, and Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. It's a tough one. Do you think uh, the only be one I don't think on the only one? one that I will be super surprised if he wins is Leonardo DiCaprio because he just didn't do anything for me in that film because I was too busy watching Brad Pitt because he was so good in it. Agreed. But um we're going to talk about it in the second segment we do, but I just want to mention Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory is one of the greatest things I've seen in years. He is so amazing in that. And, you know, I just uh, screened Doolittle the other night. Yeah. And he plays kind of, oh, oh please tell me. perked up. I it's love fantastic. Robert I actually, Downey Jr. See, I'm the opposite. I, would, I wouldn't cross the street for him. He drives oh, me nuts. He's really? too cynical for me. Me. He's too cynical wow. for me. Anyways, Antonio Banderas shows up in that. He always does those great sort of over-the-top villain characters, yeah. so great, and fun ones. He's great in that, but this is Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, Joker is... For them to get like 11 nominations too, I was quite kind of surprised about that, but people are really embracing this film and, uh, you know, he just was on 60 Minutes on Sunday, so that, you know. How do you get 11 nominations and be really the only person in the movie? Well, that's the thing. Win. No other acting actors right. got nominated for it. So, yeah, I think that's, we can't go wrong. Jonathan Price is perfect in The Two Popes, but you have to drink a lot of coffee to stay awake for that one. And Adam Driver. Yeah, he's okay. Yeah. He's okay. It's a nice movie. It's a solid movie, but it's not, I don't know. I'm not, I didn't walk out of there going, wow. Yeah, I have a hard time going to that movie. Maybe it's because I'm divorced. I don't know. I don't know. I'm divorced too, but I didn't even think of that. Thanks. Now I'm going to ruin it for me. I don't want to go. I don't want to go there in my downtime. Really? Exactly. (laughs) All right. I I digress. Let's go to uh, best. It's good though. I like that part about you. Thank you. Thank you. Best actress in a leading role. (laughs) For performance by an actress in a leading role, the actor's branch nominates Cynthia Erivo in Harriet, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, Saoirse Ronan in Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger in Judy. 
<laughs> we know you won't have an opinion on Scarlett Johansson because of Marriage Story. Um, I don't. No. I love Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. but I am hearing from everyone uh, that they really love the idea of Saoirse Ronan winning because Little Women is so good. Yeah. But, but Judy is yeah, hands down the movie, right? Renee Zell. Well, the two performances that are interesting is uh, Charlize Theron and Renee Zellweger both become. Real people, which is super hard. Um, and what, sorry, what um, Renee Zellweger did, I think, amazingly, is that I never thought about Renee Zellweger playing Judy. I thought I was watching Judy Garland from that. Right. And they did this, and it's actually, it's too bad they released this movie so early in the year because it's actually a great little biopic in that they focus on one part of the person's life instead of, you know, when you're going chronologically through everything. There's some flashbacks because you kind of find out why she became a drug addict because they were drugging her for. Um, you know, which, what was the big movie? Why is it called? Wizard of Oz? Yes. She was high through the whole thing, right? To keep her working. Oh how, how does that make you feel? I'm ruining everything, everything for you today. Everything is broken. <laughs> broken. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, she's remarkable in that. People, if you can find that, I think it's streaming now. Go watch her. Oh, That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure, Shay Ronan. Yeah, it's great. Little Women was a lovely film, but. I, how many times you read that book or seen that movie? So it wasn't re-envisioned by Greta Gerwig? A little Gerwig. bit. A little bit here and there. Some interesting stuff. But it's still the March sisters, and they're still, you got to listen to them try to marry well and all right. that stuff. I, I kind of want more modern stories about women right now. I'm sorry. There's a lot of stories to be told. Don't that. apologize. I'm writing it down. Judy. That's what I'm going to be watching <laughs> okay. this weekend because yeah, it's streaming. Okay, mm-hmm. let's go Best Director. Mm-hmm. For Achievement in Directing, the Director's Branch of the Academy nominates... The Irishman, Martin Scorsese, Joker, Todd Phillips, 1917, Sam Mendes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino, and Parasite, Bong Joon-ho. Congratulations to those men. Congratulations <laughs> to those men. a girl. Yeah, no kidding. Once again, no female directors in Hollywood had films good enough, they think, to make the uh, best picture. Greta Gerwig should have been in there, I think. But the problem is you've got to go, go back for them. They've got to get the projects. Yes. They have to get the support. It's just we go over this all the time. You're not just going to women with, you know, with scripts like The Irishman or 1917. Those aren't falling into their laps. They're still fighting the patriarchy to get those projects. So. And I saw an interview with Greta Gerwig, and she mentioned that when um, a young male director has an opportunity at a place like Sundance, mm-hmm. they then get the next big yeah. product, project, and a woman has a similar experience at Sundance, and that next big project yeah. isn't just lobbed there. It's That's weird. the thing that... Well, there's only been one woman nominated in the last 10 years, yeah. or not, and it was her. So here we go. Anyways, enough right. for that. Who should okay. win that one? Who I, should win, Quentin? Uh, big, big pictures, big movies, uh, I always think should win for best picture and best director and or getting performance. Quentin Tarantino made a big, huge movie. Uh, Sam Mendes made a really, really big. big, huge movie. So I'm, I'm kind of going to, I think Quentin Tarantino, even though he's won, well, they've actually split it because the Golden Globe, blah, blah. I think I'm going to go with uh, Sam Mendes. I think people are starting to pay attention to 1917. I've sent a bunch of people to it in the last week, and uh, it's really quite a stunner. Clint Claire Allen and Nikki Reitmeyer mm. went last night, mm. and that's all they can yeah. talk about this morning. Is it true that it's only two shots or well, something crazy like that? It's made to look that way. Yeah. It's cut. It, it's I can't remember the name of the exact technology for it, but it's cut so precisely that you actually feel like that's the case. Like you wow. sit in that movie theater and you are in France in 1917 with these guys running, right? Like it's crazy. Okay, that's being written down. Let's get to it. Best picture. All voting members of the Academy have nominated the following films for Best Picture. Ford versus Ferrari, Peter Chernin, Jeno Topping, and James Mangold, producers. 
The Irishmen, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Jane Rosenthal, and Emma Tillinger-Koskoff. Producer. Jojo Rabbit, Carthew Neal, and Taika Waititi. Producers. Joker, Todd Phillips, Bradley Cooper, and Emma Tillinger-Koskoff. Producer. Little Women, Amy Pascal. Producer. Marriage Story, Noah Baumbach and David Heyman, producers. 1917, Sam Mendes, Pippa Harris, Jane Ann Tengren, and Callum McDougal, producers. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, David Heyman, Shannon McIntosh, and Quentin Tarantino, producers. And Parasite, Kwak Shine and Bong Juno, producers. So much talent in there, holy. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just looking at my list in front of me, and I keep wanting to change my mind. I think 1917 is going to win it. I just think, because they're voting this week, um, the Academy, for those spots, right? They did the nominations, then they vote again. 1917 is gaining ground, and like I said, it is a big, giant, beautiful movie. Parasite's my favorite movie, but we're going to talk about that a little bit in a little bit. Um, will Joker upset them? I don't know. I don't know. I think I, my money's on 1917, and Tarantino maybe, but no, 1917. All right. Joker should know there's a uh, connection to us here. Braun uh, Production Company is from here, and they put some of the money behind it. So Really? Really. See, I always learn something Joker. when Dana G stops in, yeah. and I'm going to be filling out my Oscar ballot because we got the in-house pool here at CKW. Oh, yeah, Claire's got the ballots all ready to go. Okay, uh, but you have breaking news. Before we get yeah, to... I do. How much fun is this? Well, oh. just before I came in here, it was announced that uh, Billie Eilish, you know, the 18-year-old pop star who anybody who has their shoes on the right feet should get. Um, She's been announced to be the person who's writing and singing along with her brother Phineas. Phineas and Billy. Phineas and Billy Eilish. Uh, No Time to Die. No Time to Die. No Time to Die. No Time to Die. We rehearsed that. Um, the new Bond film that comes out in April and possibly um, the last Bond for Daniel Craig, Sai. Mm. Um, she's going to do the song. So we'll That's see what cool. comes out. Yeah, maybe she should just use that bad guy song. That I, love, has. I love a Duh. Bond song, I got to oh, tell you. Anyway. They resonate. They're yeah. iconic, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're big. So, they're big. Okay. Let's talk about those movies that don't okay. get the attention that you think mm-hmm. that we should see. I've got my pencil sharpened and I'm ready to make a list. Where do we begin? Okay, well, there's lots to start with, but I, I sort of broke it down into three categories for us today. We're going to do a couple films from each one. We'll start with foreign films. And I'm talking, these are movies that came out last year. Yeah. So uh, Parasite, which is my favorite and I think the best movie of the year by far, the Korean film from Bong Joon-ho. It's pitch perfect. It's scary. It's suspenseful. The performances are amazing. It's sad that some of the actors were left out of the award season in this. It won the Palme d'Or a con, which means that was the best picture there. Uh, best foreign film at Golden Globes. But in the Oscars, it gets to be in the regular best picture category. I mean, it won't stand a chance there, but it will win best foreign. I like See the it. acceptance speech with the translator saying if he can get over the three-inch high words you in, yeah. in films, you'll, you'll open up a whole well, new world. I say that to people all the time. The last day, they're like, oh, it's subtitles. I'm like, oh, you can read, though, right? I kind of get into the subtitles. You, you need to just There's relax, focus. Yeah. right? You need to relax and just follow it, because if they're done well, sometimes, obviously, subtitles are done poorly, but that's where most of the best films are, so check that one out. The other foreign film, sort of foreignish. I guess they speak Spanish in most of it. Um, I mentioned it earlier. Pain and Glory, the Pedro Almodovar. I always say his name weird. Um, Antonio Banderas' film is... Oh, I loved every second of it. Antonio so Banderas is basically playing the actual director through his life, and it's amazing. I can't believe this. We've got one okay. like quick, okay. quick must-see. Okay. 
what? Just one left to go. Okay, yeah. Canadian films. There's two you should see. Is Antigone? Yes, it's not. It's Antigone, not Antigone. See that and Antigone. see Anne at thirteen thousand feet. One's a Quebec film. One's uh, I think from Alberta film. Both fantastic Canadian films. Lots of good movies. There. Anne at thirteen thousand feet. Anne at thirteen thousand feet. Antigone. It's not Antigone. Dan <laughs> G. It goes by too fast with I you. Know. Will you come back and see me soon? Uh, yes. And we'll just go for a nice glass of wine together because it's been too long, girlfriend. It has. Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah this week. And I just did not get a chance when speaking with Dana G to mention that her husband, Paul Hyde of Rock and Hide, that Paul Hyde, yes, uh, has an art show at the Chernoff Fine Art Center. It's called Souvenirs, and it starts this Friday. So it's January 17th to February 15th, 265 E 2nd. We like to support local artists, and certainly uh, Paul Hyde would be a very cool uh, person to support again. It's called Souvenirs, and it's at the Chernoff Fine Art Center at 265 East 2nd. So that's good to keep in mind. You know what? I'm on Twitter a lot at Jody Vance, Jody with a Y on Twitter. And I put out there that I'm just feeling the pain of people living in poverty in this weather. I look up at the at the temperature and I can't believe it in downtown Vancouver. It is minus seven degrees without the wind chill. So it is extreme cold. What is the city of Vancouver doing to provide shelter or care for the people who are struggling with poverty in our city? I put that out on Twitter and you know what? Uh, Celine Mobiles responded. She is the Director of Homelessness Services for the City of Vancouver and joins me in studio. Thank you for doing this. Jody. thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to to talk about this really important issue. Um, Homelessness is a humanitarian crisis, not only in the city, but across this region and across the province. And um, it's it's a tragedy all throughout the 365 year. 365 days. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but obviously, um, given the extremely cold weather that we're having, we're very concerned about people's life safety. Um, and we have been working really hard to open additional warming center capacity and working with our partners to open additional sites so that nobody has to sleep outside. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come and tell your listeners about that. I'm glad that you're here because, I mean, I mean, so many questions. It's like we've got people camping in a park, in tents. It's minus seven, maybe minus 12 overnight down downtown and we have SROs that have been shut down because the living conditions are are deplorable they they're just not and so where are we putting people how can we help are there places that people can go to that maybe they're unaware of mm-hmm. well um oh there are a lot of a lot of things to unpack in yes, that okay, in that go. question um Yes, I, you know, we find ourselves in this situation because of the housing unaffordability in the city, the lack of um, uh, available stock, um, not a lot of housing available at low rents, which people on in- income assistance can afford. So there are a number of drivers of homelessness. Um, in these conditions, one of the things that we've done um, during the colder winter months, um, we have worked with uh, with the provincial government to open what we call temporary shelters. So Great. those are shelters that are open 24-7 throughout the winter season, so typically November through to the end of March. And um, these, these are places that you can actually take your belongings. Because exactly. that's a big problem with people not wanting to leave their belongings outside, exactly. not able to bring them into a shelter. So a warming center, you can. So the temporary shelter, they're low, what we call low barriers. So people yep. can bring their pets, they can bring their belongings, they Great. can come in with their partners. Then we also, so we have a number of different types of shelters. We also have what are called extreme weather response shelters. So those are funded by the province and coordinated or activated through the Homelessness Services Association of 
CBC. So those are a life-saving response. Again, they're low barrier. People can come in. There's meals. And then the city, we wanted to create additional capacity. So we, uh, about three years ago, we started opening warming centers. So this year in the city, we have four sites. Okay. Warming centers are activated at feels like minus five or minus five, so quite cold. Um, we're there. Cold. We are there. Yeah. Definitely, we're there. Um, and again, um, we uh, we have for the OPS is uh, one of the sites on Hastings. Uh, the Aquatic Center is serving as a warming center this year, as is the Powell Street Getaway. I didn't know um, that about the Aquatic Center. Good yeah, to know. Yep. I did know about the Overdose Pre- Prevention Society. We were talking about them yesterday. Blanketbc.org is saying, I'll pick up your blankets. We'll drop it at OPS for them. And they were seeing an uptick in donations. That's a big piece of this is how our community of people of haves can give to those who are without. Definitely. What I would encourage your listeners to do is you can either go to the Vancouver.ca on the website, right on the front page um, is a list of um, extreme weather response shelters and warming centers that are open. They're activated right through to Friday and we'll be monitoring the weather to see whether or not we extend those. Um, you can also call BC211. So every morning they call shelters to see if they're, they have any uh, bed availability so they can direct you if you're wondering about where you might be able to tell someone, maybe someone you see someone in your neighborhood, or you know when you're grocery shopping you see someone sleeping on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, so BC two one one BC two one one also works with our nonprofit service providers who do amazing work um, to really where operationally feasible allow people to come inside and, and maybe um, create some additional capacity. But BC two one one also works with them to identify what they need. So whether it's blankets or yeah. maybe it's toiletries or whatever. So you can call BC two one one who can also help direct you about how you might do some call to action with your neighbors or your family and friends and, and where to drop off. Oh, Celine, I love this. So do we just call 211? Yep. It's because the city's 311. Yes. Information used to be, I don't know if we use it anymore because we Google it, 411. So 211. And we can say, what's the need and where is it needed? Correct. Oh. <gasps> I love this. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm so glad you're here because I didn't know that. And I've been asking, what can we do? How can we make change? How can we impact our community? That's direct to the human in need. Exactly. And I just want to say, I want to thank you for raising it. Again, you know, I think we think about it more because the weather is so terrible out there. Um, but this is an issue that it affects people profoundly and has devastating consequences for people right throughout the year. So, you know, um, raising awareness, being aware of um, what you can do to help and how you can um, encourage your political leadership uh, to to support and, and find new solutions. At the city, uh, shelters, warming centers, they are an emergency response. Um, we also need longer term solutions, right? So we need to look at what we call the entire housing continuum. So bringing on new supply of, of social housing, purpose-built, good, decent quality housing, making sure that they're renting. Like the temporary modular units that we have seen sort of come into play, but we need way more. We need more of those. We need more of those. Well, Selena, I'd like to welcome you back uh, when it's not extreme weather so we can talk about some of the things that we can do on a day-to-day basis because you've taught us a lot today. I would welcome that opportunity. Thank you so much. Vancouver 211. You want to know how to help the homeless in our communities across British Columbia? You can, you can find out. Start acting locally, and then we can spread it throughout the province. Vancouver 211. Vancouver.ca for more information as well. Um, yeah. And, and if, you, if you forget that or you need more on that, at Jody Vance on Twitter. Because you know what? Sometimes social media can work for the greater good. And uh, we're doing it here. Celine, thank you for coming in. Thank you.